Turn with me over to the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 23. We're going to continue our series on stewardship. And the title of this message is Stewardship, Proportionate Living. Stewardship, Proportionate Living. Matthew 23, verse 23, and Jesus is speaking here. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin, and have neglected the weight of your provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are things you should have done without neglecting the others. Lord, help us as we study. Two things I'd like to pull from this. One, how we need to avoid disobedient obedience. And secondly, what it means to develop obedience. A lifestyle that looks like we are, are obeying God in every area we know to obey. Now the back, backdrop to this passage is that Jesus is in Jerusalem for the last week of his life. He would be crucified a few days later. He'd come in with the fanfare of everybody saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Save us, please. We need you. You're going to be the Messiah. We, we coronate you now. But the religious leaders were not involved. The populace was. And by midweek, the tide had turned. The sentiment had become that which was no longer, let's make him king. It was now, let's put him on a cross. And we can see that there were some, there were some seminal moments that probably changed the opinion of many. And this was one of them, Matthew 23, where you have eight woes, eight, where Jesus says, woe to you. And some of these woes are not, not very nice. You know, you can be kind without being nice. Kindness is a disposition that you have toward all men that allows you the privilege of deferring them, deferring to them in your opinions, and preferring them in their preferences. That's what kindness is. But some, sometimes we confuse it with being nice. And Jesus surely wasn't nice in these woes. One of them he calls all the hypocrites and Pharisees and Sadducees vipers. Says you brood of vipers. Another place he says you are whitewashed tombs. Not very nice. But unusually kind. And let me tell you why. He's been trying to minister to all the people but specifically these folks for the better part of three and a half years. Every time he came to Jerusalem, he went to the temple and he taught. Well, who was in the temple except the leaders? Yes, the populace would follow him and they would hear what he had to say, but he was targeting people who had influence. Then those people would follow him around trying to catch him in a loophole whereby they could accuse him either to the people or to Rome. Like the one, should we pay taxes? If Jesus said no, then they could accuse him to Rome and say, this is an insurrectionist right here. He doesn't believe the people of, of, of Rome, the Roman Empire under the Roman rule, should pay taxes. If he said yes, then he would lose credibility with all the, the Israelites who believe they should never pay taxes to anyone. This is catch-22. And then he says, give me a coin. Whose picture is on, on the coin? Said Caesar. Well, give Caesar what's his. Give to God what's his. Oh, all the people went, oh, that was good. That was really good. Did you hear that? That was really good right there. 
Amazing. And so the religious leaders would follow him around. And he wouldn't say any of what he's saying now then. He would let them understand his wisdom. He'd give them the privilege of coming and being a part of his world. And a couple of them did. We don't know how many, but we do know of two. Nicodemus, who was a disciple at the end of Christ's life. And then there was Joseph of Arimathea, the man who was a leader among the Jews and yet gave up his tomb so that Jesus might be buried. He was called a secret, the Bible says. He was a secret disciple, but at the end, he became public and had to go before Pilate and say, may I please have the body of Jesus that I might bury him in my tomb. We know at least two that came, and there may have been others. But Jesus did not have the greatest success among these people, yet he was doing everything he could to try to give them the kind of truth that would draw them in rather than repel them. But they had alternate agendas. And so here he is in the last week of his life, and he's saying things that seem very, very difficult, but he's doing all he possibly can to help them, and he's starting with woe. And woe means this, it's more than just a statement you make about a horse that's going in the wrong direction. It means judgment is around the corner. Be careful, you're about to step off into something from which you can't recover. Woe, listen to me. Your end, not the end, but your end is right around the corner. Be careful. And when you see somebody's impending doom, generally you throw all niceties out of the window. No more, can we please have a conversation? Pardon me, I'd like to discuss something with you. I've been to a, I've been a mission mission strips quite a bit and, and often I have to go to places where they drive on the other side of the road and only a couple of times have I ever rented a car and done that both of them were serious mistakes <laughs> it's not so much going straight it's when you have to take a right or left turn what you normally do you know a right turn is, it, it, it feels like a left turn when you're over there because you, you're, you're in the left lane and you have to take a right turn so you begin in instinctively to move over to the right lane to make the right turn when that's the oncoming traffic. Ooh, it's a little scary, but you can learn it in a minute if you're really diligent. The most difficult thing is not so much driving, it's walking. Because you're not thinking about the cars that are coming in the opposite direction when you cross the street. So we have a way, we've been taught, when we exit the curb, look left, then look right. Because left are the cars that you would approach first when you got into the street. Because they're coming this direction. So you look left and then you look right. And if it's clear, you cross. Well, when you're walking, you don't think like you are when you're driving behind the wheel because you're constantly in motion. You just kind of assume. And I, I can't tell you the number of times when I have been saved by people. When I stepped off the curb looking left when I should have looked right first. And I went like this, and somebody yelled and grabbed me by the shirt and said, Stop! And then a car went by. I said, Oh, Jesus. Oh, thank you. And then I hugged that dude. He didn't say, "Uh, Excuse me, Pastor, can we have a moment? It was a woe. Judgment is right around the corner. You better stop what you're doing right now. I was grateful. And that's what you get when Jesus gets to this point. You're right around the corner from a serious catastrophe. I'm begging you, listen to what I got to say. And they aren't listening. 
It's the mercy of God that he's speaking in these terms to try to get their attention. But they won't have any of it. And instead of accepting what he has to say, they crucify him. It's a sad, sad moment for the religious leaders. And in this passage, he's emphasizing something. He says, the way you obey is really interesting. It's kind of, kind of, kind of backwards. You will tithe of your dill and mint and cumin, but you won't regard faithfulness and mercy and justice with any care. And you think you're obeying because you tithe. You're replacing this area of obedience with this area, excuse me, you're replacing this area of disobedience with this area of obedience. Thinking that somehow you're going to church is going to fix and be the patchwork for all of what you did on Saturday night. That your adultery is going to be covered by your giving to the orphans in Kenya. You think that you can replace your disobedience with obedience, but you cannot because you cannot redeem yourself. There is no good work that can fix your bad work. Something's wrong with your understanding of obedience. And Jesus speaks of it in these terms. How is it that you are taking so seriously the command of tithing? And, and, and when, he, when he talks about this, he uses the things that are the most insignificant with respect to obedience and tithing. He's not saying your paycheck. He's saying your tithing spices. Have you ever seen what dill looks like? It's a very small, wispy plant. And, and, and you, you know, if you have a handful of dill, what do you do? You take three leaves and tithe? I mean, how do, you, you are breaking it down to that. Do, do, if you have 10 plants, do, do you tithe one of them? How do you determine what a tithe is with a plant? But you figured it out. You figured it out. You've gone to that degree with the area of tithing. But you missed out on loving your fellow man completely. That's not important to you at all. How you judge your fellow man, that's not important. And, dis, and, and, and distributing mercy, that doesn't even cross your mind. What is wrong with you? How do you believe that it's okay to be disobedient in your obedience? That you can obey in one area and it's okay if you disobey in another because you obeyed there. I don't know what excuse they would use, but Jesus said improper, improper. Now, there are people who, who say that, that the, the, the issue of tithing is an Old Testament concept. But Jesus here commends it. Seems to me that that's about the highest level of authority you can get with respect to what ought to be done. Because at the end of this, he says, you should have done the, the weightier things without neglecting the former. Meaning you should have been tithing and doing that. Which brings us to the whole idea of what the word of God should mean to us. That we should not be picking and choosing that which we want to obey. It is all his word, every bit of it. Now, there are weightier provisions to his word. It doesn't mean that there are some parts that need to be obeyed and some that aren't, that there are some that are more God spoke than others. He spoke them all, pinned them through men, 
inspired by the Holy Spirit. It is all the Word of God. But the benefits and consequences of different edicts are weighted differently than others. Let me give you an example. Just in my own personal life, I've got rules in my house. Every dad, every mom does. And one of the rules is my my sons have to take out the trash. My daughters, generally, Cynthia cares for them, and they have to do the dishes. And neither of them want to switch. The ladies are happy with doing the dishes, and the guys are, let me say it this way. They're happy not doing the trash, the women are, and the guys are happy not doing the dishes. Neither of them are happy with their responsibility. But, 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 but they know they have to. But, but there's nobody who's perfect on the planet, least of all those who are in my house. And so the boys do a pretty good job of taking out the trash, but they'll miss it every once in a while. Now, when, when they miss it, everything stinks. You know, trash stinks. And it's, it's the whole house just, yuck. You wake up to it and you think, who died? What, what, what happened here? And then when they don't take the trash out, it stinks up the house. And then you've got to get it out to the trash can. But then they're supposed to take the trash cans and put them at the corner. Because I have, do you have raccoons? I, they live in my woods next to my house. And they enjoy my trash. And if we keep it out there too long, they come and eat it up. And they don't, they, they are very neat. They just spread it all over my yard. And so we, I, I, you got to take the trash out to the street, and you've got to keep tap, tops on it. And then when the, the people come to pick, I'm sorry to take you through this, but it, it's cathartic for me. And then when you take and, and put it out of the street, when they pick it up, you have to bring the cans back so that we can then take the trash that is on the inside out again. Sorry. So, thank you. I appreciate the empathy. A man who understands. So... So it's not a complicated job, but it needs to be done regularly. And if the trash isn't taken out to the street, then, then on Tuesday, Monday night, then they don't pick it up till Friday, and now it really smells in the entire neighborhood. There's so many complications if somebody doesn't do what they're supposed to do. <laughs> but if they don't do it, I'm not going to ground them for six weeks. They might have some, some very displeasurable words coming from me. What happened? How did we miss this? Isn't this an easy job? How, how, don't you have a calendar on your phone? Do. Don't you have an alarm? You can do this. This is easy. So they get, they get words like that from me. But, I, you know, I'm not, not going to take away their phone. I'm not going to be inordinately consequential to their misdeed. Now, if they start talking back to mama in a way that's disrespectful, they might have to pay their own bill for their phone if they have a phone. There are certain things that are more weighty in my house, yet they have to do them all. But there are greater benefits if they obey and greater consequences if they disobey to certain things. Same way with God. Same way. They talked about with Jesus in Matthew 22, previous chapter. They came to him trying to catch him in a loophole. Which is the greatest law? Jesus. And now remember. They believe all the law is good and all of it needs to be that which should, should be complied with. They believe it all. Which is the greatest? And they were hoping to get him to where he could be discredited in front of the people. He said, this is the greatest, to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. Upon these two rests all the law and the prophets. You do these, you'll be good. He answered correctly. Now we've taken that as 
so gospel that it's almost non, we don't even have to think about what Jesus said, and we know it's true. But in this passage is a great understanding of the hierarchy of Scripture. The hierarchy of Scripture says there are more weightier things than others. There are more weighty things than others. All of it needs to be obeyed. But some of them are more weighty because if you do those, you'll do everything else. It's possible to do some without doing the major. And this is what the, the Pharisees were doing. Now, it doesn't mean that, that some of the Word of God is less than other parts of the Word of God. All of it needs to be obeyed. But we need to understand why it was written. We need to understand to whom it was written. We need to understand the context. We need to look at the type of writing of the book and realize that some of it should not be taken literally. Though I believe the entire Bible is literally the Word of God. The entire Bible is literally the Word of God. But I don't take my entire Bible literally. If so, then I believe in the book of Revelation that there is a beast, a dragon, that is coming to devour a child. And dragons don't exist. Why aren't you saying, why aren't you affirming what I'm I'm saying? You believe dragons exist? You believe they can fly and have fire coming out of their mouth? What is wrong with you? I believe that that is figurative speech that allows us to understand what is going to happen to the church and what is going to happen in the world. And it is written in such a way that the readers of the book of Revelation and the writer of it will not be accused by Rome of insurrection. And so he's writing in code that which he has seen so that the people who understand the imagery can understand what's going to be happening. There there are poetic books that are written in very flowery language, like the Song of Solomon. You've got to read that with different eyes. And so you have to understand what's being said, why is it being said, to whom it's being said, and who is writing, and the style of literature in which they're writing. I believe my entire Bible is literally the Word of God, but I don't take it all literally. I have to understand why it was written and to whom it was written and the purpose. When we look at the priority or the hierarchy of Scripture, there are some things that are more weighty than others, i.e., if you love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and you love your neighbor as yourself, you do not have to be concerned about one of the Ten Commandments. Not one. Yet they are all important. You don't have to be concerned about adultery because if you love your neighbor as yourself, you won't do anything wrong to hurt that person. You don't have to be concerned about whether you steal Because if you love your neighbor as yourself, you won't take that which is not yours. Greater. Because it has an overarching ability to cover every other commandment. And the Pharisees were concentrating on the little things down here and neglecting the weightier things up here. And he said, I don't get it. How is it that you can figure out how many leaves you ought to pull off a plant in order to tithe to God? But you can't figure out how to bring justice and mercy and faithfulness to your brother. Something's wrong with you. Something's really wrong. And so these weightier provisions allow us the privilege of understanding God's ability to prioritize, to try to make our observance of his rules and laws simplified. There were 612, including the Ten Commandments, that people would have had to observe in the Old Testament. Yet God was trying to bring it down to as simple as possible. And so when you get to the book of Micah, which is in the mid-700s B.C., he says, what is it that God requires of you, O man, but to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God? 
Now, that question would have been answered by a whole lot of other people saying, well, let me give you the 612. That's what he requires. But God was trying to distill it down to the hierarchy of Scripture so that people could obey at a high level and then everything else would fall in line. And then when you get to Jesus, as I've already said, what is the greatest commandment? Yeah, really one, the second one's attached. Love God, love people. You do those, those two things, you're set. Hierarchy of Scripture. When you get to the, the points that, that Jesus is trying to make here and those which the Pharisees and Sadducees and hypocrites were, were ignoring, he says, make sure that you are a person that is not a misanthrope. Now, you, know, you know what a misanthrope is? It's a person who hates people. You act like misanthropes. That's what you act like, he said. Something's wrong with you. And that when you judge, you don't judge properly. If he's a friend of yours, you'll judge on his behalf, even if he's wrong. Because he's your friend. You won't let the righteousness of God be reflected in how you, you adjudicate. And when you judge individuals, you judge wrongly. Now, on this point, everybody wants to quote the scripture. They don't even know who said it. They just know it's in the Bible. They don't know where it is. Judge not. Favorite passage. Favorite passage. Everybody wants that because it, 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 it then shields them from anybody calling them wrong. But I mean, really, is Jesus saying don't judge? Is that what he's saying? Huh. I had a conversation with a person on this passage. And I began to tell them, before we got to the point which he brung up, what was wrong in their life, agreeing with, with the, the Holy Spirit and with the Word that they needed to change and, and that they weren't right with God and, and something really needed, needed, needed to take effect whereby repentance was seen. And, and they, they began to quote the scripture, well, judge not lest you be judged. I said, oh, okay, so are you judging my judgment of you? <laughs> because if you're judging my judgment of you, then you're judging me and you're disobeying the scripture you're quoting to me by judging me. Well, you just, you just can't call me wrong. Well, somebody needs to. Because what you're doing is wrong. You, you can't steal from your company. Do, do you know that? You can't do that. You, and, and the thing that's most important in your life with, with respect to change you need to give your heart to Jesus because you're living on your own by yourself. You are your own salvation and you know you can't save yourself because you do too many things wrong. You can't be your own God. You need to submit to the fact that Christ became your sacrifice. You needed to die. You didn't. He did. And now he's given you his life. What a great exchange. Why don't you want that? Why don't you want to give up, raise the white flag of surrender and say, I'm yours. This is how much he loved you. You love him like that. I was saying it very nicely, but it's preaching format for you. Very nicely. I said, but you're saying I'm judging you in the process. So by saying judge not, lest you be judged, you're saying that I'm judging you and you're judging my judging you, which you're disobeying the passage you're speaking about. So this means one or two things. One of us is wrong and a judgment needs to be rendered. Jesus can't be saying don't judge. He can be saying don't judge wrongly. And one thing I can't do when somebody is wrong, 
I can't look at them and say, this is why you're wrong, because your filthy soul just spewed out wickedness. And you are so vile. It's just horrible. You can't begin to talk about folk like that. You can't judge people like that. You don't know where they came from. They may have had a serious decision for Christ when they were 15. I mean, really got right at 21. But they didn't have all the, the Bible training and, and somebody teaching them and, tra- and, and, and discipling them. They, they may have come from a background where their parents struggled with addiction. And so they were in, in the environment where things were just normal that were abnormal to most of us. They, they may not have had anybody drag them to church like my mama did. You don't know what they came from. And so they may have made a serious decision that God honored. But they have struggled in their flesh to try to figure out how to make it right. So my, the relegation of my judgment is upon their actions, not upon their heart. That, listen, I, I know your background's bad, but that is no excuse for what you did. Now, we can pray for you, and God can heal you from that stuff. And we can see you get better progress than ever before. But don't continue to use all the stuff that didn't happen to you or did happen to you wrong as as somehow a reason for why you needed to do that. You need to repent of that. But I can't judge whether God is going to let them into heaven even if their lifestyle is messed up. Timothy says, Paul says in Timothy, only God knows whose are his. Only God. Which means this. Even as there are a lot of people who look really, really wrong, And might be right because God saved them. There are also a lot of people who look really, really right. And might be wrong. I don't know. But I'm not trying to judge whether you're right or wrong with respect to your appointment to heaven. I'm just looking at how you live. That needs to change. I can help you change that. Stop that. And Jesus said, you will know that they are my disciples by their fruit. He didn't say you'll know they're they're my sons, just disciples. So there are people who can be diligently following, and you will know it by their fruit. There are others who don't diligently follow, and you know it by their fruit. So there are judgments that should be made, and then there are judgments that should not be made. We need to judge rightly. And if we do so, we can save a lot of folks from a lot of difficulty on this planet and the consequences thereof. Secondly, he said mercy. Mercy. Mercy is one of those things that I'm just grateful God doesn't run out of it. I've tried to live as best I know and yet my failures are evident before me regularly. And the only way I can get up and be pleased with myself It's because he's merciful. He's merciful. My maturity can't help me become mature. It's a circular argument. I don't become better because I have become better. Brett becomes better because I am dependent on his mercy and grace to make me so. Do I participate with that process? Yes. I've got to say yes. And I've got to discipline myself so that I don't make stupid mistakes. But I do, and I say stuff I shouldn't say, and I do things I shouldn't do. Nothing that disqualifies me from ministry, but normal garden variety humanity stupidity. And I'm constantly faced with my own frailty and my humanity. 
And one of the greatest things from which you will ever recover is not so much what somebody does to you, but it's what you do to yourself. I mean, it's hard to forgive somebody else. I get that. But, but even at that, um, Jesus has a requirement that you do so. Yeah. And, and, and that requirement doesn't have a limit on it. So if they continue to offend you, your responsibility is to forgive. You may not call them your best buddy anymore, but your responsibility is to be merciful. Why? Because it is the apex of hypocrisy to receive mercy for uncounted offenses against God and not be willing to give it to the person who hurt you once or twice or ten times. The apex of hypocrisy. God is so adamant about this. He put it in the prayer that he told the disciples to pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses or debtors as we forgive those who trespass against us. Do you know what you are saying when you pray that prayer? You are saying, God, forgive me just like I forgive everybody else. Now, I know what you're thinking. I won't pray that prayer anymore. (laughs) Wrong solution. God brings you to this point so that you might keep your relationships current at the cross. So that you don't bring down judgment on yourself. Because if you didn't get it, he just makes it emphatic without mentioning it in the prayer. In verse 14 of Matthew chapter 6. He says, I want you to know, if you do not forgive your fellow man, neither will your heavenly father forgive you. Why? Because there are countless sins. Countless. Not just what you have done, but what you have not done that he has obliterated from your record. I think the jurisprudence system calls it expunged. It's as if you never did it. Countless. You repeat offender you countless and when somebody offends you once I'm done you cross the line are you kidding me mercy 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 lastly faithfulness the only reason I am here is because God has been faithful to me when I was not faithful And he has allowed others to hold on to me when I wanted to run. Faithfulness is a loyalty that says, even when you hurt me, I want you to know I'm going to be here. Christianity is supernatural, y'all. It requires you to be supernatural regularly. You can't just function in Christianity on natural wisdom, on what the world tells you. It is supernatural. And the supernaturalness of it allows for the rhythm of life to be seen beautifully. Do you know what makes dance look good? The opposite. Let me show you. Song's going. Somebody begins to move to the song. And they do this. Okay. That's good. But. 
when they began to do this, you get a little bit more rhythm. And then it's... What did I do? While I was going this way, my head was going this way. The opposite makes rhythm look good. When somebody offends you, to make the rhythm of life look really good, you need to forgive. When somebody abandons you, you need to go after them. The opposites make rhythm and spiritual connections look really good. This is why God puts males and females together and calls it marriage. Because it looks best when they are functioning well. Faithfulness. People have held on to me when I didn't feel like I needed to be held on to. Nothing about my life was worthy of latching on. They said, I'm not letting you go. I'm not letting you go. And namely God. And for that I am so grateful. These are the weightier provisions of the law. And you're concentrating more on how many leaves from a plant of dill represent a tithe. Are you kidding me? He says then let's, instead of trying to figure out how you can replace one act of obedience, how you can replace one act of disobedience with an act of obedience, let's have a developed obedience that allows you to do all things well. Let's tithe. Do that. But let's incorporate the weightier provisions of the law so that you can learn how to keep relationships, so that you can practice right judgment, and so that you can extend mercy to those who desperately need it. When you do that, you find yourself in compliance in such a way that God says, when it's all said and done, well done. Well done. Let's pray.